You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Good evening, church. Glad to be back in the house of the Lord. We are, my family and I were away last week, so uh, on a little vacation that we did. Got some rest, lost some hair, but glad to be back here tonight. Um, before we get into tonight's word, there's just a couple of announcements that I, I want to broadcast as well this evening. Uh, first and foremost, as you may have heard, the province is moving to step two of their reopening plan as of this Wednesday. Amen? I'm glad we're excited for that. Amen. Praise God. That's something that we've been praying for, for sure. And, and that also means for us that uh, we will be able to now have 25% capacity in our space here. Um, that being the case, that means our facility, our facility here can accommodate more than those who call Plus Life their home, uh, and, and actually up to about 60 people in this space. And uh, what that also means is that we don't need to worry so much about registration. There will hopefully be enough chairs for everyone who, who wants to attend. Now, all of that being said, this also means that we will no longer be doing our live streams, or at least that portion of our service. Uh, we initially adopted that form of service as a, uh, as a necessity, as you all know, because we could not meet together in person. And then when the government started reopening uh, churches up to 10%, 15%, we, we sort of switched our, our mindsets on the live stream so that it would be a sort of a, a, an overflow for those who would not be able to register uh, for in-person service. But now all of that has changed. The country is reopening, stadiums are full, parks are fully booked, uh, people are vaccinated, and everything is opening up again, and hopefully for good this time, right? Um, and so as, of, so as of the start of July, next week, in fact, uh, we, as we enter into step two, uh, as in the province's reopening plan, again, we will no longer be live streaming our services. We're thankful for everyone who joined us online, of course, but if you would like to continue to participate in our worship service, then you need to register for a seat, follow the health protocols, protocols of the church, and join us in person. This is what we've always said and talked about as a church, right, throughout this pandemic. We as a church strongly believe that the church is the people, the people who gather. In fact, that's what church means in the original Greek, ekklesia, meaning the called out ones who congregate, not over live stream, right, uh, who assemble. And so we don't want to get comfortable or grow complacent about meeting together just because we can watch from the comfort of our homes or, or watch it the next day uh, if we miss it on the Saturday night. Again, there is really no longer excuse when it comes to not coming out in person, especially when the rest of the country and the rest of the world is already opening up. Now, please keep in mind, we're, we're still adhering to some of the recommendations uh, of the Ministry of Health of Canada, as they have advised for churches and religious gatherings, as long as it's within reason and as long as it doesn't interfere with our worship to God. So you can rest assured that when you come into our church, that it'll still be a safe and healthy place for you to come and worship with your loved ones. Church, I just want to say this very sincerely, 
it's time to come back to church, right? It's time to get uncomfortable again. It's time to set aside the day and the time and the hour for intentional worship in person again of our holy God, to fellowship with other believers again, to sing songs of praise united in one voice together in person again, to to, to lay hands on one another in prayer, to, to hug uh, the bereaving brother, to, to comfort the mourning sister, to come together and sit at the Father's feet once again in person. We've missed you and we love you, but it's time to come to church. Get fully vaccinated if you need to, bring your mask, whatever it takes, but church is now open and it's time to come in. No amen to that? All right, cool, that's fine. You know, I took, you know, I prayed about this, and we're fine, it's okay, fine. Uh, secondly, before we go on to our sermon, starting next week, we'll be putting a pause on our John series to begin a vision-casting series, uh, something that we're calling Worldview, Worldview. The premise of this series is to remind ourselves the vision and mission of our church, and at the same time, examine the difference between what our church professes versus what the world propagates. Because the reality is, as much as we propagate a gospel of hope, the world also has their version of hope. So what's the difference? As much as we're called to reflect the love of God, the, the world has its own definition of love. So what's the difference? And, and we're going to be talking about that, discussing how our church looks like in the world these days, and all, and all of that and more to come. Uh, starting next week. So come check that out and join us as well in person. Um, but with that said, we're going to jump into tonight's passage. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse, and we're going to be reading from verse 16 to 21. And please stand with me as we give reverence to the reading of God's Word. We are reading from John chapter 3, from verse 16 to 21. says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to, conde to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask for mercy and grace again, just as we sang moments ago. Lord, we need your help to hear from you. You know the distractions on our hearts, the things running in our minds, and we ask, oh God, that you would just give us your peace this evening. That, Lord, by your Spirit, you would speak to us and move our hearts to conviction and change. I pray, oh God, that you would humble your people this evening. That we would receive from you whatever it is that you have desired and allotted for us this, in this time. God, we thank you, and I pray that we would not waste this time that we have. 
that we, be, that we would be attentive to your word, to your spirit. And that God, if you, you demand from us life change, that we, we would submit and surrender to you this evening. And for those who do not know you, again, we pray, O oh Lord, that you'd give them the gift of faith, that they would trust and believe in you this night. Lord, have your will, have your way. Use me as your instrument of peace once again. In Jesus, your mighty name. Amen. Amen. Before you sit down, tell someone the title of my sermon tonight, The Judgment. The Judgment. Tell them, I'm judging you. No, don't, don't do that. That's not. That was a joke. For those of you who, who are just joining us this evening or in the middle of our study here, we've been working through the Gospel of John, verse by verse, passage by passage. We've been trying to get to the heart of John's message, his intention for his gospel, which is, as we've been saying throughout the series, John chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Our purpose, if you remember from the very first sermon, is to know our Savior more, to solidify in our hearts why he is the Messiah, the Christ, also the Son of God, so that we may truly live or have life in his name. And so we've been working through chapter 3 for the past month or so, and we've been tackling the deep truths therein. And so just by way of recap, if you remember from the start of chapter 3, this conversation begins with this Pharisee, Nicodemus, coming to Jesus in the cover of night. He comes with a question on his heart, which he doesn't even get to ask because Jesus being God already knows his heart. He knew the question Nicodemus came to ask, and which was, how does one get to see or enter into the kingdom of God? Nicodemus was a Pharisee, highly respected, a ruler in the Sanhedrin. Historical accounts actually say that he, is, he was one of the richest men in Jerusalem that day in those days. And, and though everyone sought his wisdom and teachings, it seemed as though he was in search for teaching himself. It seems as though he, there were some questions of his own that he wanted answered. And so he goes to this miracle worker, Jesus, who, who, who he saw perform miracles during Passover and, and believed that the Spirit of God was with him to get some answers. But the answer he gets is not exactly what he wants to hear. Jesus says to him in John Chapter 3, verse 3, if you remember, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus cuts straight to the point. He says, unless you are born again, born from above, there's no way of entering or seeing the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God being sort of an umbrella statement for salvation and forgiveness and redemption and inheritance in the kingdom of God. Nicodemus fully understands what this idea of being born again means. This was a metaphor that Jesus was using. Pharisees and other teachers used metaphors and parables in those days to teach and talk. And so he understood the implications of what Jesus was saying. Similar to how you do not contribute anything to your physical birth, you contribute nothing to your spiritual birth. That's what Jesus was getting at when he talks about being born again. This is referring to God's sole work of regeneration to start the process of salvation where God washes us and, and sends us his spirit and he removes a heart of stone from our heart and, and replaces it with a heart of flesh as, as we read in Ezekiel. The point is that you can do nothing to earn or merit 
your salvation. Very simple illustration that Jesus uses. Now, remember what we've been saying as well. This would have been mind-blowing, a stumbling block, really, for someone like Nicodemus. For someone whose faith was based on good works. Someone who followed all the laws, all the ritual washings and the sacrifices and the dietary laws and the Sabbath laws with the hopes of doing enough good to be in right relationship with God. This was Nicodemus. But what Jesus was talking about was a paradigm shift for him. It's why Nicodemus responds, how can this be? How can a man be born when he is old? He recognizes the absurdity of the notion compared to what he already knows or what he's known all his life. But again, Jesus points to the Old Testament, referring back to the words of Ezekiel, as we mentioned, talking about the flesh producing only flesh and how the spirit works like the wind and blows wherever it desires. Right? This is talking, of course, about the monergistic work of God to save the lost. All of which, again, this Pharisee, Nicodemus would have recalled and understood and at the same time find very perplexing. Nicodemus was still struck in his or still stuck in his works-based mentality and Jesus even calls him out on it. In verse 10 he says, "Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things?" Jesus is saying, You're, "You you study the Old Testament and teach it, but you don't understand these truths." I'm telling you or showing you even in scripture he goes even further and says well if if you don't believe these earthly truths that i'm i'm sharing with these basic truths how are you to believe the heavenly truths the, the the deeper truths and then jesus gives one last old testament illustration to explain what nicodemus's problem was and also a solution to his dilemma he recalls in verse 14 of john chapter Uh, Three, the story of the Israelites in the wilderness and how they rebelled against God. They grumbled against God and God punished them by sending fiery serpents or poisonous serpents um, because of, and so Jesus connects this with with Nicodemus' unbelief, talking about how it's because of his sin, because of the, the pride in his own heart that he has this issue of unbelief. But he also points out to the solution here. He says, he talks about belief and faith in the Son of God. Similar to the pole that that Moses put a serpent on. This was the answer to Nicodemus' question about how he could enter or rather see the kingdom of God. How he could be saved. It wasn't continuing in his good works. It wasn't in trying to earn it. For himself, the Holy Spirit needed to regenerate his heart so that he could believe in the Son of God. Totally, it's totally out of his control. And that's where this great discourse between Nicodemus, the Pharisee, and Jesus, the Son of God, actually ends. If you have a red letter Bible, it might include our passage tonight as part of what Jesus is saying. But most biblical scholars will agree that our passage tonight is actually not a continuation of that conversation, but rather a commentary on that conversation, one done by the Apostle John. This is the Apostle John going back to his commentary, similar to the opening passages of John chapter 1, explaining everything that Jesus had just spoken about with Nicodemus. He's going deeper into the heavenly truths that Jesus hinted at to Nicodemus. What are these heavenly truths? Well, let's jump into our passage. Everyone say jump. Sounds really good in person. The Apostle John picks up his commentary by going straight to the motivation of salvation. 
John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world. God's love. That is the motivation, the fuel for our salvation. Remember the purpose of John's gospel was to get people to believe unto salvation. By, but, but imagine having just read this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who was a ruler among the Pharisees, someone who, would have, who was known for his piety and his righteousness, for his scholarly wisdom of the Old Testament. But Jesus just said no to him. He denied him access to, to the kingdom. I, I imagine that the sentiment would be, well, if Nicodemus, who is so righteous and so pious and so knowledgeable in Scripture, could not do anything to enter into the kingdom of God, what hope do I have? If this man, Nicodemus, this Pharisee, was, who was known for his righteousness, who, who, who lived by the law all his life, could not enter into the kingdom of God, according to Jesus' words, what hope then do I have? Well, here is the hope that John talks about. For God so loved the world. The great hope we have as sinners, unworthy of salvation, is God's love. If you've ever read the gospel, uh, this gospel of John before, and even John's epistles later on, you know that John talks about God's love numerous times times he probably the most um, right most most more than any other writer in the new testament in john's gospel alone he, he mentions love 39 times in his first epistle he talks about love 26 times or 26 times no one beats john when it comes to talking about god's love he was of course the disciple whom jesus loved but all the apostles talk about god's love starts here in john 3:16. Now, oftentimes we quote this verse, John 3.16, and we often pause here, right? For God so loved the world. Pause. And then we emphasize how much God loves us and the world, etc. But that's not how actually John writes it or intended it to be read. The emphasis here is not meant to be on the object of God's love, but rather how he demonstrates that love. Verse 16, again, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. A more literal translation reads, For this is how God loved the world. He gave His only Son. The emphasis is not who God loved, but rather how He showed His love by giving His Son. Remember, John is answering the question of how we can be saved. How we sinful sinners, or how we unworthy sinners, and how we who don't merit salvation, how we can be saved. The reason we can be saved, according to his commentary, right from the get-go, is because God demonstrates his love for us by sending his son to die on our behalf. That's our hope in the matter. And, 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 and it goes on to say, and that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's the hope that John wants us to hear. The reason why we can hope for salvation, even if it's out of our control, even if it's all God's work, it's because God loves us, even in our sin. And of course, he demonstrates that love by sending his son to die on the cross so that whoever believes might have eternal life. And we'll, pack, we'll unpack more of this later in a, in a minute here. But continuing in John's commentary, verse 17, it says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And I want to stop here a second because I often hear 
this verse taken out of context as well, right? I often hear people say, see, Jesus didn't come to judge and condemn people. So why are you condemning me? You don't know me. You're not my real dad, right? Well, let's keep reading. And let's hear what God has to say. Verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is what? Condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So the reason why Jesus didn't come to condemn is because apart from him, we're condemned already. According to God's word, you've already been judged apart from Christ, apart from faith in Christ. Now, this idea of condemnation and judgment that John brings up in this portion is meant to bring to mind a court scene, a courtroom scenario. In fact, the word that John uses here in the Greek for, for condemnation, or rather even judgment, is krino, meaning to decide or decree upon in a judicial setting, or, or, or with, uh, whether or not one is to be punished or condemned. And so the way that John presents the following truths in his commentary here in our passage is meant to be seen as though the world is on trial, Right? You know, the court, is, the court is in session. You know, the judge is in town now. And, and the world is the one who's on trial. He even says in the next verse, verse 19, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. John goes on to say in verse 20, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does not, does what? But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The idea here of exposure or being brought into light is evidence, proof of wrongdoing or even righteousness. Again, playing into that courtroom analogy that John is trying to depict here. So let's break this down a little further, his commentary. What's John trying to say? Well, let's start with the verdict. Let's start with the verdict. As I mentioned, John is very clear. Whoever, verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Apart from faith in Christ, we are condemned already. That's the start. That's the baseline, right? We're rolling with disadvantage. We're driving on empty. We're, we're, we're 10 fries short of a happy meal, whatever you want to use, right? We're already condemned is the point. Every other world religion would have you believe that, or of this idea of works, that you need to earn your way into right standing with God. You need to earn your way into paradise or heaven. That if you do enough good works in this life, that you know, at the end of your life, there'll be a balancing scale. And if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then, then you'll be able to go to heaven. Sorry, but that's not how it works, according to Scripture. This passage says that the scales have already been tipped to the bad deeds, towards the bad. And there's nothing that you or I can do, nothing, to tip the scales back to the good. Well, how is that fair, you might ask. Well, right. well John explains it in verse 19. He says in verse 19, this is the judgment. This is why the scales are tipped that way. Why, the, why we're starting from a disadvantage from the get-go. He says, the light, Jesus, the truth of God, has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So John is getting to the root of the problem. 
even though the light, Jesus Christ, the, the truth of God has already come into the world, the world still chose to love the darkness. Why? Because their works were evil. This is not saying that we were doing bad things. No, this is saying all our works, everything we could produce as human beings is evil, tainted with sin. Jesus said earlier, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, meaning the only thing we can produce in of ourselves is worldly and sinful, according to scripture. Again, Isaiah 64, 6, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments, filthy rags. Romans 3, 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As we mentioned before, this is the doctrine of total depravity, radical corruption. That because of Adam's sin, every human being after him was corrupted by sin. Sin became our nature. And so even our righteous deeds, our good works, our good intentions merit us nothing except evil. This is why we say we're sinners, not because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. From the moment we were born, we are radically corrupted by sin. David, in his, his repentant psalm, Psalm 51, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother did conceive me. Again, the scales have been tipped towards the bad from the very first day. And if you want an example of this, listen, you know, my son Judah, right, he's almost two years old, and let me tell you, this boy is starting to test my patience, right? They said, have kids, they said, right? Like, oh my goodness. Um, you know, we, we've been, we've been uh, sort of training him how to potty now, right? He, he's, he's in that potty stage now. And, and so whenever, you know, we, we sort of ask him, you know, Judah, if, if you've pooped, you know, tell me that you've pooped. And sure, sure enough, five minutes later, this little stinker, right, doesn't say anything. And we can smell him from miles down the road. And, he's, you know, Judah, did you poop? And guess what he says? No even though I can smell him. Who taught him to lie? I know I didn't. I mean, I'm a pastor. <laughs> My point is, you never have to teach a kid disobedience. It comes naturally. And that's a sin nature for us. The verdict is in. We are sinners, fallen short of God's glory, his standards. And in our society and in our culture today, this needs to be heard, it needs to be preached. Because unless you hadn't noticed, we live in a pharisaical culture. People always posting on social media all their good works and all the good that they have. People always voicing out their outrage over something. Some may be genuine, of course, but others just do it because it's the trend, it's what's popular, it's what's in fashion because it makes them look good. There's a lot of virtue signaling out there, right? It's like the Pharisees praying out loud in the streets. It's a culture of Pharisees where everyone's self-righteousness is on display. But the Bible says that good, whatever it might be, regardless of how many hashtags you have, it's not good enough. Regardless of how many causes you fight for, you voice out, it's not good enough falls short. 
and here, and, and John continues in his commentary. Here's the sentence, here's, or rather the punishment, right? Here's the sentence that, that John gives, a consequence for, for this guilty verdict. Back in John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not, what? Perish. The word John uses here is apolome, to destroy utterly, eternal ruin. John is actually doing another word play here. He says, whoever believes in him will not experience eternal ruin, but experience eternal life. The sentence for our guilty verdict, eternal ruin in hell. Paul says in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is what? Death. Death here is thanatos. It's all-encompassing death. Not just a physical death, but a spiritual one. That's Jesus describes it as a place where the worms do not die and the fire does not cease. And in case you didn't know, at the end of the day, it's Jesus himself who sends people to hell. But I thought Jesus doesn't condemn. Read your Bible. Matthew chapter 7, verse 22 to 23, it says, Matthew chapter 7, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name, and then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Of all the people in the New Testament who talks about hell and punishment and judgment, Jesus is the one who talks about it the most, because he is the one who's sending people there. John later records Jesus' own words in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. He says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, this, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is Jesus' words on the throne. And you think, well, I'm not that bad. You know, I've never killed anyone. I'm not Harry Potter. Well, James chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has, been guil- or has become guilty of all of it. Basically, you break one, you break them all. Again, none is righteous, no, not one. All of us has been found guilty of sin. And the punishment that we deserve, all of us, is hell, eternal ruin. Eternal destruction, as Paul calls it. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, he says. Now you might be thinking, sheesh, I came here tonight just wanting to worship in person. I'm getting hit with this heavy topic of hell. My goodness, come in, we're reopened. Well, good. And sorry, but not sorry. I'm glad you feel uncomfortable if you feel uncomfortable because it's better you feel uncomfortable now and you feel the heat now than in the next life. Trust me, there's no turning down the thermostat there. Mark chapter 9, verse 43 says, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. Again, Jesus' words. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. 
The point is, it's better to deal with your sin today than pay for it tomorrow in hell. Churches need to be preaching this more. And that's why we've been going through this series. We've been touching on these hard truths of total depravity, unconditional election, and definite atonement, and all these things. Because these hard truths are, are, are necessary for you to understand. Because we love you. And we want to be sure that you're sure about your salvation. We want to be sure that your faith, your belief, is, is in nothing else but Christ alone. So that you do not experience the punishment of hell. Because listen, if, if, it doesn't matter if you've been in church all your life or you've been in ministry all your life. Again, we just read that passage of Jesus saying, there's going to be a lot of people saying, Lord, Lord, did, did, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we cast out demons in your name? And yet Jesus still says, depart from me, I never knew you. There's a lot of self-deceived Christians in churches today. And our desire, my desire as a pastor, is that you are certain about who you have faith in. It's easy to get comfortable in our Christian experience, only to find out that we were never known by the Savior. We were never saved in the first place. So the verdict is in, we are found guilty. The sentence is eternal ruin, destruction, and hell. So what then is our hope? Let's talk about our defense. The defense. Our only defense. Notice the focal point of our passage, found almost in every line that we read this evening. Verse 6, from just going back to verse 16 of our passage, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And whoever believes in him, verse 17, for God did not send his son, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment, the light, again, that's Jesus, has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. The point of John's commentary here is to point out that our only defense before a holy God, having been declared already guilty of sin from the very beginning, having been sentenced to eternal ruin already, our only defense is Jesus. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live the righteous life that we should have lived, to die the death that we should have died, to pay the price that we should have paid. Christ takes our sin and punishment and he gives us his righteousness and, and his relationship with the Father. That's what theologians call double imputation. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is our only legal defense before a holy God. Paul says to Timothy, for there is, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Our only defense, not our good works, not some saints, not Mary, not anything else in this world, not our parents, not our heritage, not anything else. Jesus is our only defense. 
And so where does this leave us? What does John say in our passage? Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Verse 18, again, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. The only play we have in this court case is faith. It's belief. Remember what we've been saying, faith, or rather belief, is, is not something you do, but rather an exclamation of what you can't do. It's throwing up your hands and surrender to say, God, I can do nothing to save myself. I need you. As we've been saying, faith and belief itself is a gift from God. Faith is evidence of the Holy Spirit regenerating our hearts. That's what John says, right? He says in verse 21 of, of our passage, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. That belief, that faith necessary for salvation can only be carried out in God can only come, and can only come from God, the work of the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 89, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one can boast. Faith is a gift. And that faith must be in the finished work of Jesus Christ for our salvation. That's our defense. The verdict is in. We're guilty from the start. The, the sentence, eternal life in hell. But praise be to God by his mercies and his grace that he sent his son to die for a people who did not deserve it. That is our defense, our defense in Christ. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as we close this evening. Romans 6.23, we read this passage earlier. It says, For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a free gift. And again, if it hasn't clicked into in your mind yet, in your heart yet, There's nothing that we have done to deserve this gift of grace. There's nothing that we have done to merit this unconditional love that God has for us. Yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I hope that humbles us, church. I hope it reminds us of our position before a holy God. I, I hope it, it dwells in us a desperation to once again fear a holy God, to once again recognize
Thanks for listening. We hope that you are blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.